You can have your Bibles handy today, continuing in our sermon from last week. Uh, Genesis is spelled wrong there. Um, Continuing in our sermon from last week, Understanding the Covenants, the second part of this. Last time we were together, we began exploring our perspective on the five primary covenants which we find in Scripture related to what I would call the kingdom covenants. Uh, We said two weeks ago, we talked about the nature of the kingdom and the way that we believe the kingdom relates itself to God's overarching plan uh, for His creation, for humanity. And then as we thought through the nature of the kingdom and how we've chosen to organize the scripture in a a coherent way that gives us a bit of an understanding of of what God is doing throughout history, Uh, we spent time last week thinking through the nature of these five kingdom covenants that are presented in the pages of scripture. We distinguish our perspective first uh, from what is oftentimes called covenant theology or or, or the, the ideas of replacement theology. And we uh, spoke of the, the, the contrast specifically for this reason, so that when we talk about the covenants, and even when we talk about the nature of the kingdom, uh, we recognize, and, and this is very important to how uh, I interpret the, the Word of God as it relates to not just the covenants, but as it relates to all of the, the prophecies and promises, we believe um, that God still has a plan for national Israel, uh, that God has not replaced Israel with the church, that the church is not um, the, the natural replacement of Israel in promise promises or, or in plan, but that God still has a plan for the nation of Israel, for the descendants of Abraham and Isaac and of Jacob. And as we talk about the promises of God to Abraham, starting in Genesis 15, and then we continue to talk about Isaac and Jacob in the, in the, the weeks that, that come uh, after that, uh, it is going to become obvious uh, that we are coming from this perspective that God is making these promises to physical descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And then we'll start to distinguish uh, what Paul talks about in in Galatians as it relates to um, the the nature of those who are of Abraham's seed and what Paul is trying to say there and and how we distinguish those those, uh, differences as Paul describes them both in Galatians and in Romans. So we have this perspective and and, and as a general rule, um, and we talked about isms last week as well, and warned about isms, but as a general rule, rule, we would fall into the camp of what's called dispensationalism, believing thus that God still has a plan for his people. And as we considered last week through the two unconditional covenants that we explored, along with exploring that singular conditional covenant that we call the Mosaic Covenant, recognized in Scripture to be temporal and limited in scope and in application, last time we were together, thus, we considered the Abrahamic Covenant. Which, we formally, which will be formally established here in Genesis 15, which we will be digging into beginning next week. And we recognize that, this, that the promise of God, beginning in, in Genesis 12, in fact, and then continuing in Genesis 15, is comprised actually of three unconditional promises. The first, that God would give that land upon which Abraham walked to him and his family forever. The second that God would establish a perpetual seed that would be more numerous than the sand of the sea. And then third, that God would bless not only Abraham, but that through Abraham, all the people of the world, all the people of the earth would be blessed. 
So we considered first the Abrahamic covenant, and then we considered the ideas, uh, well, we considered next the, the Mosaic covenant, actually. Then we got to the Palestinian covenant. So we considered next the Mosaic covenant. And the Mosaic covenant centered around this desire of God to bless his people. And then as he blessed his people, that they then would become a blessing to the world that is around them in the come and see sort of method, that they would be a city that was set upon a hill. And that as they followed the Lord and as they did what the Lord commanded them to do, he would bless them and he would bless them supernaturally. They, their women would not be barren. They would have no plagues. There would be no famine. There would be no drought. The, there would be no nation, no matter how small Israel was, no nation would be able to stand against, no nation's armies would be able to stand against the Lord and against the, the Lord's people in the nation of Israel. And as the people of the world saw these blessings, they were supposed to look at them and say, there is a God. He is in heaven. These are his people and these people are blessed. And we believe in this God because we cannot but believe in him when we see the power of this God. So we, we see that God gave them this covenant as a desire, an extension of his desire to bless his people. But we also saw that that covenant was in fact conditional. God's blessings were dependent upon the actions of the people and of the nation itself. And this is unique as it relates to those covenants of redemption. This is interesting. It's also strange. And we talked about that last week. How if we were reading through the Bible in a narrative fashion and we were actually understanding it as the Bible was presenting these concepts that we would get to this idea in the Mosaic Covenant in Exodus and we would say, well, this is interesting. This is different. That God has this expectation upon the people that they have to live up to. Now, at the time, it wouldn't have been uh, startlingly different because we're still fairly early in the narrative, but it would have been different from the, from the other covenants that we'd seen so far. The, very different from the covenant that we saw in Noah's day. God put no conditions upon Noah when he said, I will never again flood the earth. And then he puts his bow in the sky as a means by which to promise, to remind himself of his promises. There was no conditions, as we talked about last week, when Abraham was told to cut those animals in half and to lay them on the sides of that hill. And then God put him into a deep sleep and in a vision, the Lord himself walked through the midst of those animals. No condition was made there, only promises. But then we have this Mosaic covenant. And in this Mosaic covenant, there is condition. If you bless, if you obey me, I will bless you. If you disobey me, I will curse you. And as we look at the broader purposes, both of God's kingdom plan and of redemption, we know that man does not have and indeed cannot have any effective role in the redemptive process. That's the whole reason why we need a savior, because we are powerless to redeem ourselves. And so as we look back upon the Mosaic Covenant, we see the difference. Within that time, maybe they didn't quite see the distinction just yet. But as the Mosaic Covenant lives out its purpose throughout the pages of the Old Testament, as we read about the cycle of apostasy and judges, where Israel keeps being delivered by God and then they fall back into their sin once again, and they're in this cycle of sinfulness, then repentance, then deliverance, then sin, then repentance, then deliverance. As we see them ask for, demand, in fact, a king to be like the nations that are about them. As we see that, that kingdom develop into a truly marvelous kingdom in the days of David and then in the days of his son, Solomon. 
And yet all throughout, as we read, going through the kings and the chronicles, king after king after king, we see various comparisons. The first being whether that king had a heart like David's. And then we hear this thing quite regularly. Yet his heart was not perfect toward the Lord. Yet he did not remove the high places. Yet he did not remove the altars. And we see that though God in those times of obedience would bless his people, yet they would perpetually fall back into sin. They would perpetually fall back into disobedience. They would perpetually have to be called back through consequences, through curses, through sufferings to him. And we say, well, this is interesting. This doesn't make sense. As we look back on it, wait a minute. God has given these unconditional promises. The promises to Abraham and to his people were unconditional, and yet we have these these cursings that are falling upon this people because they simply cannot live up to the expectations of God, will not live up to the expectations of God. And we addressed that last week. Understanding from Scripture, thus, that the Mosaic Law was temporary, was limited in scope. It was intended to be in place for a time, and that time was was supposed to give way at the appearance of Messiah at the appearance of Jesus Christ in the fullness of time. So the law was functional as a schoolmaster, according to Galatians chapter 3, verse 24, to bring men to Christ, to guide men to the true solution to their problem found in Christ's finished work. And then finally last week, we considered the Palestinian covenant, given as a supplement to the Mosaic covenant, found in Deuteronomy 29 and 30, with Deuteronomy 29 verse 1 saying that this covenant existed beside the covenant that was given at Horeb. And this covenant, like the Abrahamic, is presented unconditionally, dependent not at all upon the actions of the nations, but rather when God says, God told them when all of the things in the Mosaic covenant come upon you, both the blessings and the cursings. When you, have, when you have lived through all of those cursings and you are scattered abroad throughout the entire world, and then he made promises, telling them that there was coming a day where he, where he would turn their hearts back to their land, where they would be drawn back to their land. And when they came back to their land, then he would circumcise their hearts. He would give them a new heart. He would make of them a new heart and then he would, he would thus empower them to love him and obey him the way that he commanded them to do so in the law. In Deuteronomy, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one God and thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thy heart and with all thy soul and with all thy might. That is the true great commandment. And the one commandment that throughout all of history as, as the, the people of Israel have attempted to keep the law, the one commandment that they have never been able to live up to legally is to love the Lord their God with all their heart, soul, and might. And so the, the Palestinian covenant promises this and couched in that is a reiteration of God bringing them back into the land, into the land that he had promised to Abraham, reiterating the promise that that land would in fact be theirs and he would rule and reign over them in the land of promise. And that leads us this week to two more covenants. And then we're going to see how they connect uh, one to another in the end. The fourth covenant of the five kingdom covenants that we see here is the Davidic covenant. 
And this is given to King David, hence the name, the Davidic covenant. And we find this covenant in 2 Samuel 7. In 2 Samuel 7, verses 12 through 16, the Bible says this. And when thy days be fulfilled, the Lord speaking through Nathan to David, when thy days be fulfilled and thou shalt sleep with thy fathers, I will set up thy seed after thee, which shall proceed out of thy bowels, and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build an house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be his father. He shall be my son. If he commit iniquity, I will chasten him with the rod of men and with the stripes of the children of men. But my mercy shall not depart away from him as I took it, away, as I took it from Saul, whom I put away before thee. And thine house... And thy kingdom shall be established forever before thee. Thy throne shall be established forever. There's never been a question all the way back to the promises made to Abraham that God would eventually administer his nation through kings. We find that as it relates to the time of the judges that God administered the nation in a a theocratic or perhaps we might say a theonomic sort of a way where God was intended to lead the nation effectively through the high priest And then they would be a kingdom of priests. And that was God's desire and God's intent. That was God's vision from the beginning. And yet also from the beginning, we recognize that kings were always a part of the scope of what God expected. In Genesis 17, verse 6, we'll get there in a few weeks, we find that God tells Abraham that kings would come from him. God promised Judah through the blessing of his father, Israel, in Genesis chapter 49, verse 10, that the scepter would never depart from Judah, from the family of Judah. Recognizing in that day that that the family of Judah, through the family of Judah, would come a kingly line. And that was specifically within that prophecy until the Bible says, Shiloh come. Now there's a lot of unknowns as it relates to the name Shiloh Specifically, but most biblical thinkers, orthodox biblical thinkers agree that Shiloh in that context speaks of the Messiah, of the coming of the one that would establish God's kingdom forever. So that the scepter would never depart from the family of Judah until the final king would come, that king being Messiah. As God makes this promise then to David, he creates a covenant with David. And notice it is not a conditional covenant. In Saul's day, God anointed Saul. And then Saul, through his faithlessness and through his failures, was deposed from the king, from from his authority. And not just himself, but his entire family line was deposed as the kingly line. And what God says here in 2 Samuel 7, specifically verses 14 through 16, is that God would not do the same thing to David. That David's son would rule, and as he ruled, when he committed iniquity, the Lord would chasten him, but he would not remove from him the right to, to the kingly line in the same way he did from Saul, but that his kingdom and his house would be established, his throne would be established forever. So that as we trace this line, we trace it from Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob through Judah and then to David. And God makes this promise to David, not based upon any action or any circumstance directly, but rather a promise of an eternal kingly line regardless of the actions of his posterity. And he says that very specifically. 
If your children disobey, I will chasten them, but I will not remove my promise from you. If it had already been well established at this point then that Messiah was coming to rule in righteousness, the promise of the ruler would become even more established in the centuries that would follow through the prophets. But the reality is that everyone knew that this Messiah, that this ruler who was going to come, was going to be of the line of David. Because that was the promise that was made in 2 Samuel 7, verse 14. Now, the difference between the prophecies of this Messiah before the Davidic covenant and after the Davidic covenant is simply that everyone now knows that the Davidic line is the line through whom he would come. And this is not just, of course, said in 2 Samuel 7. It is well understood throughout the prophecies so that we read in Jeremiah chapter 33, verses 25 and 26. Thus saith the Lord, if my covenant be not with day and night, and if I have not appointed the ordinances of heaven and earth, then will I cast away the seed of, da- da- of Jacob excuse me, and David my servant, so that I will not take any of his seed to be rulers over the seed of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. For I will cause their captivity to return and have mercy on them. We've talked a little bit about this in our Amos series. Tonight we'll talk about it again. It's a little bit outside the scope of our message today. But notice here that God does not use the covenant name of Israel when he's talking about his promise here. He uses the name Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Even if we were to make the argument, and again we'll talk about this in the weeks to come, that the idea of Israel is a spiritual idea that carries over into the church it is very difficult to then say that this promise to the seed of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob is a promise that is given to the church. Jacob was the pre-covenant name of Israel. Jacob was a name that meant supplanter or deceiver. He was given a new name because he went from being the supplanter, the deceiver, to being a prince with God. That was the name that was given to him to reflect the covenant. And the fact that the promise is made not just to Israel, the covenant name of the man, but to Jacob, not just to a line, but to David's seed, reminds us here that we are couched in a physical lineage, promises to a people. And so we find here that the Davidic covenant establishes concerning the character of Messiah's Messiah's kingdom, this reality that he would come from the line of David. Now, when Jesus walked upon the earth the first time, he walked upon the earth and he was called regularly the son of David. This was not a title that he rejected in any way, shape, or form. He recognized and acknowledged himself to be that son of David. And he came and he said this, repent for the kingdom of God is at hand. But he also said, my kingdom is not of this world. At that time, he was not there to overthrow kings. He was not there to set up a throne of his own, at least not yet. But the fact that Jesus is that son of David, that he prophesied to sit on the throne of David, is yet another reminder that there is a physical kingdom coming. A physical kingdom over the seed of Abraham and Isaac and of Jacob. If Jesus is the son of David set to establish the throne of David forever, to rule over the house of Abraham, Isaac, and of Jacob, then we should expect him to rule as did his father. So we read that God would establish a lineage, physical descendants from the line of David. And we know from history that those descendants would sin. 
And through that sin, there have been interruptions in the, if you will, the, the, the constant rule of the line over the nation. Now, there has not been a king sitting upon the throne of Judah in many thousands of years at this point. But even so, God says he would never remove his blessings from David's house and he would never place it upon another line. So that the last time there was a true king in Israel, that king was of David's line. And the next time there is a true king in Israel, it will also be of David's line. Prophetically, he will not only be of David's line, but he will in fact be Jesus Christ himself who will rule and reign sitting upon the throne of David. And all throughout the scriptures, we can read of this Davidic covenant revealing just how important it is. We read in Jeremiah, you can read about it in Ezekiel, in Isaiah, in Daniel, in Hosea, in Amos, in Zechariah, in Matthew, in Luke. All referencing the promises to David and the lineage of David unto Messiah. And again, I won't get into all of that today. We will continue to explore more of that as the weeks go on, as we think through those, those topics as, as they continue to develop in Scripture. But they all point to this king, this hope to Israel, even in the days of their exile, even in the days where they have been scattered abroad, that they will be brought back to their land and that they will be ruled over by the son of David on an eternal throne. So it is we find then the Davidic covenant as an extension of this promised seed, the seed that would come, the seed of Abraham, the seed of Isaac, the seed of Jacob, the seed of Judah, the seed of David. An extension of what God has promised to Abraham in Genesis chapters 12 and 15. And like with the land covenant, we see a temporary link in the Old Testament between the Davidic covenant and the Mosaic covenant. In the Palestinian covenant, it was through the fulfilling of the curses and the blessings, right? When all of these things come upon you, then God can bring about this unconditional covenant. That when they have failed at the conditional covenant, then the unconditional covenant can, can come to pass. In the same way, the Davidic covenant is rooted in the promises of a king that are given in the Mosaic covenant. In the Davidic covenant, the kingly line would be under this theonomic or this theocratic administration of the kingdom intended to be established under the Mosaic Covenant before God. These kings were intended to lead the nation into obedience to the covenant. And to that end, the conditions which the king of Israel was judged by were actually contained in the law. These conditions are contained in Deuteronomy chapter 17, verses 14 through 20. I didn't put it up on the screen, but I'm going to go ahead and read it for you. And as I read it for you, I want you to listen for the conditions within the law itself for the kings. The Bible says in Deuteronomy 17, verse 14, When thou art come unto the land which the Lord thy God giveth thee, and shalt possess it, and shalt dwell therein, and shalt say, I will set a king over me, like as all the nations that are round about me. God prophesied they would do so. Thou shalt in any wise set him king over thee whom the Lord thy God shall choose. One from among thy brethren shalt thou set king over thee. Thou mayest not set a stranger over thee, which is not thy brother. But he shall not multiply horses to himself, nor cause the people to return to Egypt, to the end that he should multiply horses. For as much as the Lord hath said unto you, ye shall henceforth return no more that way. Neither shall he multiply wives to himself, that his heart turn not away. Neither shall he greatly multiply to himself silver and gold, 
And it shall be when he sitteth upon the throne of his kingdom that he shall write him a copy of this law in a book out of, uh, out of that which is before the priests of the Levites. And it shall be with him and he shall read therein all the days of his life that he may learn to fear the Lord his God to keep all the words of the law and these statutes to do them that his heart be not lifted up above his brethren and that he turn not aside from the commandment to the right hand or to the left to the end that he may prolong his days in his kingdom he and his children in the midst of Israel. So within Deuteronomy 17 verses 14 through 20 we see five expectations laid down for, the, for Israel's kings. First, it was expected that he would not multiply unto himself horses. And specifically, that he should not cause his people to return to Egypt to get those horses. Third, he should not multiply unto himself wives. Fourth, he should not multiply unto himself silver and gold. And then fifth, that he would write out a copy of the law and that he would read it all the days of his life. Read the physical copy that he wrote out. Now, if you look at that list, um, and we, we talked about this when we were uh, studying it in Sunday school, uh, you'll find that, that in the days of Solomon, he breached every single one of those to the letter. Uh, it was in Solomon's days that he actually multiplied unto himself horses, and he sent his people down to Egypt to get those horses, and he multiplied unto himself wives, and he multiplied unto himself silver and gold, and he did not write out a copy of the law. He breached all of these, and thus we see the, the beginning of the decline of the house of David in Solomon's days, and of course the breakup of the nation in uh, his son, in Solomon's son's days, in the days of Rehoboam. But we find in our time, what, what we're emphasizing thus is is that the law anticipated the kings, expected the kings, and put down expectations for the kings. So there is a connection at this point between the Palestinian covenant, the Davidic covenant, and the Mosaic covenant. The Mosaic covenant is the representation, if you will, of the blessing from, Ab from the Abrahamic covenant. To that end, as we look at the Old Testament, as we look at these four primary covenants, there is no way to disassociate any of those covenants from the Mosaic law. And once again, this is confusing to us, right? This is confusing to us because the Mosaic law is temporal and the Mosaic law has been failed at every attempt. There's no way for Israel, they refuse to, they cannot live up to and keep that law. So we have a big problem. All of these unconditional promises exist, but they are all attached to a conditional covenant. Three unconditional covenants, but they all are attached in some way to a conditional covenant. How is that possible? How can that be? Well, it can't be, right? This is a big problem. All of these covenants were appropriated by means of faith, but there is this one covenant that sticks out like a sore thumb here that, that Israel cannot live up to, that they will not live up to. And until they are able to live up to the righteousness of God in that covenant, God cannot give them the unconditional promises of the Palestinian covenant, of the Davidic covenant, and then certainly it cannot bring to full fruition the blessings. And that is the big problem throughout history, really throughout the history of Israel. That Israel, because they have this big disconnect, because the Mosaic Covenant 
was they had to live up to it and they could not live up to it. They failed to seek unto the Lord and these blessings through faith unto obedience and rather they sought the blessings of God through the law at the expense of faith. And this is what Paul tells us in Romans chapter 9 verses 30 and 32. He says, what shall we say then? That the Gentiles which followed not after righteousness have attained to righteousness, even the righteousness which is of faith. But Israel, which followed after the law of righteousness, hath not attained to the law of righteousness. Wherefore? Because they sought it not by faith, but as it were by the works of the law. For they stumbled at that stumbling stone. So because of the nature of their, their unwillingness and inability to live up to the expectations of the law, the expectations of this conditional covenant by which they had experienced uh, far more cursing than blessing throughout their history, they hardened themselves in their determination that they were going to appropriate the, the righteousness of God, but not by faith as Abraham appropriated it, not by faith as David appropriated it, but rather through their own righteousness and through their own effort. And so they stumbled at the stumbling stone that was the call that even in the Mosaic Covenant, they were called to appropriate it by faith and they did not do so. They took the law, the law that was intended to lead them as a already redeemed people, we talked about that last week, into the maturity of obedience and they trusted in the law itself to be their redemption, to be their righteousness. And so, not seeking in faith, they had to seek it in self-righteousness and that worked in them pride and hypocrisy rather than humility and faith. And this led to generations of misguided, legalistic, hypocritical and judgmental religious leaders so deeply entrenched in their own self-righteousness that the law to them became a God of its own formed in their own image. And of course, we see the problem with this. As I've said, now we have a situation where God has made these unconditional promises to the seed of Abraham, Isaac, and of Jacob. Unconditional promises to the seed of David. Unconditional promises of gathering them back to the land. All of these promises exist and they're unconditional. They're not conditioned upon anything or anyone. They are indelibly written in the heavens. It has nothing to do with man's actions. But, as with every promise, even if it is unconditional, it must still be appropriated by faith. It must be received by faith. And if they did not have the faith to receive it because they were seeking with all their hearts to earn it through self-righteousness, then God is unable within his character to give them the things that are earmarked for them, that he has promised for them to have. He cannot in his justice allow the fullness of the blessings of these covenants that he has made with them to be poured out upon them because they have not sought and appropriated them by faith. So they are unconditional in that there's nothing that they can or cannot do to cause them to be removed. But they do have a prerequisite before those promises can be obtained and they are unconditionally reserved or fulfilled in them. They must set aside their own efforts and they must receive that covenant by faith. And Israel has historically stumbled at this prerequisite. And so this means that the nation must undergo a fundamental transformation of character. Exactly what God promised in Deuteronomy 30. A change from sin and self-righteousness to obedience and faith. 
before God can actually give them the blessings that he has unconditionally promised to them. The Mosaic law proved that man could not achieve this place of blessing on his own. His sin nature rules over him, which means if man is going to be able to receive those blessings, if Israel is going to be able to receive those blessings, his sin nature must first be dealt with. It must be removed from the equation in order that God might then fulfill the promises that he made by bringing them into a place where they would love and obey him the way God has ordained them to love and obey him. And that brings us to the final of the five covenants. The new covenant. We talked last time about the fact that the functional purpose of the law, according to the New Testament, is to show man his own incapacity unto righteousness and thus to lead men to Christ. So Galatians chapter 3 verse 19 tells us, Wherefore then serveth the law? It was added because of transgressions till the seed should come to whom the promise was made. And it was ordained by angels in the hand of a mediator. So the law was added because of transgressions to curb the natural tendencies in the heart of men unto evil. That until God would bring about in the fullness of time the Messiah, Messiah would have to come about in time. God had a plan for when Messiah would come about, when the right time for Messiah to come would, would be. But between when God had made the promise and when Messiah was going to come about, what were men to do in the meantime? Thus God gave them the law. It was added because of transgressions until the seed should come to whom the promise was made. The law served to temper men's sinful impulses, specifically until that fullness of time when God would send His only begotten Son to finally deal with the problem of sin and then enable man through said redemption to be delivered from his sin and to be able to obey God the way God has desired man to obey Him. So Galatians 3.24 says, Wherefore the law was our schoolmaster to bring us to Christ, unto Christ, that we might be justified by faith. The law was there to teach us just how far short we fall. The law was there to expose just how great our inadequacy is so that when we are introduced then to a mediator, to one who is righteous, who could stand between our sinfulness and God's righteousness and bridge the gap between them, when we were introduced to that one who would bear our sins so that we might bear his righteousness, we would be ready and eager to receive him with all of our hearts because we have learned through the incapacity to keep the righteousness which is in the law that we simply have no ability to do it ourselves. That we need that mediator. And without him, we are helpless and we are hopeless. But as we already read in Romans 9, the nation of Israel stumbled at this offer. Jesus Christ came and he came as their Messiah, as the son of David, as the, the, the Christ. And the nation rejected him. Because their hearts were determined that they could be righteous enough in and of themselves to please God. But from the very beginning, God had warned them that this would not be so. In our exposition of the Palestinian covenant in Deuteronomy 29 and 30, we saw God warn them that it would not be so. That they would invariably fail at their attempt 
to keep the conditions of the Mosaic law because they would follow it in self-righteousness. So much so that once they had experienced all the consequences of their failure, God would have to step in. And do you remember what he promised in Deuteronomy 30, verse 6? That the Lord thy God will circumcise thine heart and the heart of thy seed to love the Lord thy God with all thine heart and with all thy soul that thou mayest live. God promised them that when they finally failed at the Mosaic Covenant, that then they would turn to Him. And in that day where they realized that they had failed, and when they turned to Him in faith, that then He would do for them what they could not do for themselves. That He would change their hearts and make them able and willing in a way they were never able and willing in and of themselves to obey Him and to love Him as He has commanded them to obey Him and to love Him. And in this, we find the same promise that exists in the New Covenant. A term coined in Jeremiah 31. In Jeremiah 31, verses 31 through 34, we read this. Behold, the days come, saith the Lord, that I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah, not according to the covenant that I made with their fathers in the day that I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, which my covenant they break, although I wasn't husband unto them, saith the Lord. But this shall be the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel. After those days, saith the Lord, I will put my law in their inward parts and write it in their hearts and will be their God. And they shall be my people. And they shall teach no more every man his neighbor and every man his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me from the least of them unto the greatest of them, saith the Lord, for I will forgive their iniquity and I will remember their sin no more. Notice the language here. God says he's going to make a new covenant, prophesying of a day where he will bring about a new covenant. And he specifically states that this covenant will not be like the one that he made in the day he took them out of Egypt. It will not be like the Mosaic covenant. It will be different from the Mosaic covenant. But rather, he says, rather than giving them expectations and blessing them for obedience and cursing them for disobedience, a system which failed, not because the Mosaic law was insufficient. Paul says that the the law was holy and righteous and good, but rather because the heart of man is insufficient because man simply can't live up to it. Man has no capacity to live up to God's righteousness. So rather than that, because they broke that covenant and they were able to break it because it was conditional, dependent upon their actions, God says instead he's going to make a new covenant. And in this covenant, he says, I will give you a new heart. I will circumcise your hearts, if you will. He will place his law within them. He will make it a part of them. He will root it in the very fibers of their being. So that they would love him. Because he will cause them to love him. And this is the promise that we found in Deuteronomy chapter 30 verse 6. This is the new covenant. Intended to fulfill the law of Moses. Intended to do everything for men that the law of Moses could not do. In that, as Paul says, it was weak through the flesh. It was not unrighteous, but it was weak because of man's sinful flesh. So what the law could not do, God would do 
in this new covenant that he was going to bring about. That he promises to open up the fullness of the relationship of, of, of a relationship with him. That he would be their God and they would be his people. And at that time, God says, all will know me. And he would forgive all of their sins and he would remember them no more. Far from the temporary atonements of the Old Testament sacrificial system, the promises here are of a complete remission of sins when God would write his law upon their hearts. We read more about these promises in many other places. Jeremiah 32, Ezekiel 16, Ezekiel 36. All of these promises to Israel and Judah of a day of forgiveness, of a day when they would finally have within themselves the desire and the capacity to love and to obey God as God has always asked them to do. And notice once again who God says he will bring it about to. Israel and Judah on that day. Not just Judah, not just Israel, not just the southern tribe that persisted and continued into Babylon and came back into captivity, but even those tribes that were taken away by the Assyrians hundreds of years earlier. God includes them in this promise as well. How is that possible? I don't know. But, he, but they're there. Nevertheless, It's important to note the context within which all of these prophecies are given. God had declared to them their sin. And he was now in the process in Jeremiah 31 of sending them into captivity. Jerusalem and the temple would be destroyed by the end of Jeremiah. The nation would lose its identity. And in the midst of these terrible judgments, the prophets were given this message. But notice what this message was in Jeremiah 31. It's the same thing we're going to find in our Amos series in the evening. It's the same thing that you find in Ezekiel. It's the same thing that you find in Hosea. That at the end of the promises of judgment, there is always this fascinating message at the end of the prophets. And the end of each prophet brings hope. Brings promise of, rest of restoration. Brings promise of renewal. God says, you have failed your failure will bring about consequences, but there's coming a day where I will fix it, where I will make it right, where I will undo what you have done. That's the promise of every prophet. Look for it. In every prophet you read, look for it. It's always there. There's always hope at the end of the prophecy of judgment. And this new covenant would be established that would enable them to walk in obedience and experience these blessings. The blessings that he had promised going all the way back to Abraham. These unconditional blessings. And so we must contrast then the promise of the new covenant with the exceptions of the old. Both covenants were conditional, uh, uh, both covenants conditioned blessing, excuse me, upon the reality of obedience. And we've spoken of this already. No spiritual covenant with God is enacted without faith. But we see the real differences after that. The Mosaic Covenant left the accomplishment of the obedience to the individuals within the nation, to the nation itself. No enablement. But when God promised the, the new covenant, he said he would give them a new heart, that he would place within them the capacity to obey him, full enablement to do as God has asked them to do. The new covenant promised that God himself would not only provide the framework and bless the people, but would also give them the divine capacity to meet those requirements. So God would enable them to obey and bless them for their obedience. 
Likewise, whereas the Mosaic covenant was always temporal in scope and conditional in scope, the new covenant would be eternal and unconditional. And this is where all of the tumblers fall into place. Where we look at the Mosaic law and we say this doesn't make any sense. How is it possible that this covenant, that this conditional covenant is connected to all of these unconditional covenants? Why doesn't it make sense? How is it, if, if, if humanity cannot live up to the expectations of that covenant, if the nation of Israel cannot live up to the expectations of that covenant, then how can it be given within the scope of these redemptive kingdom covenants? Well, because the Mosaic covenant was there for a time and for a purpose. A time and a purpose which gave way in the fullness of time to the new covenant. Covenant not like the one that he gave them when he brought them out of Egypt, but one in which he would do the work. And it would be unconditional. And it would be only conditioned upon God's faithfulness and God's love. But just like in Abraham's day, it still had to be appropriated by faith. But once it was theirs, God would take care of the rest. Now, we did not read proof of the eternality of the, of the, the new covenant yet. But in Jer- jumping back to Jeremiah 31, we read this in verses 35 and 36. Thus saith the Lord, which giveth the sun for a light by day, and the ordinances of the moon and of the stars for a light by night, which divideth the sea when the waves thereof roar. The Lord of hosts is his name. If those ordinances depart from before me, saith the Lord, then the seed of Israel also shall cease from being a nation before me forever. God says, if the sun stops shining and the moon falls from the sky and all the stars are snuffed out, then maybe Israel will be lost forever as a nation. But that, effectively what he's saying there is that ain't going to happen. It's just not going to happen. Very similar to the language he used in the Davidic covenant, was it not? That the God who has set in order all of these things has made promises and those promises are going nowhere. Because God has ordained it to be so. And as we contemplate this covenant, we understand that this covenant was realized in the finished work of Jesus Christ. How is it that God could, in justice and in righteousness, allow sinful men to receive the fullness of spiritual blessings? How is it possible that God can, in justice and in righteousness, give to sinful men blessings? Well, the Mosaic Law said it is not possible. I must be made righteous. But the Mosaic Law also proved that I cannot make myself righteous. And so now we needed a system whereby I could be made righteous outside of myself so that then God could, in His justice, pour His blessings upon me. So enters Jesus Christ. Born of a woman, born under the law, but lived a perfect life, never once having sinned, and yet died a sinner's death and on the cross as his blood was shed. The Bible says, the Father made his Son to be sin for us who knew no sin, that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. So Jesus Christ took upon himself our sin so that then we could be declared righteous in him. He could be clothed in our sin so that we could be clothed in his righteousness, so that God could be both just in that he has punished sin. God has never overlooked one sin. 
God has never just passed by one sin. It has all been paid for. Just not by you. Thus, God can be both just and the justifier of those that seek him, who appropriate it by faith. A just God cannot ignore sin. So something must be put in place whereby a man's sin could be eternally paid for by someone other than him. Because if he has to pay for it, then he has to die. Then he has to be separated from God forever. The law attempted to solve this problem in a sense, in an earthly temporal sense, right? We know that that was never God's plan, but the law attempted to solve this problem with the blood of calves and of goats. But this didn't work because the, attempt, the, the, the atonement was so very temporal. Could you imagine being a, a person of true faith in Israel in that day and you would bring your lamb on that day and you would sacrifice it before the Lord and you would atone for your sin on that day and as you walked away from that altar and you walked down the steps of the temple, you had a, uh, an impure thought or you had anger in your heart and you said, I have to go get another lamb. I have to do it all over again. And every year, Israel would sacrifice that lamb on the Day of Atonement, and by, b- before the day was over, they needed another one. They had already messed up again. It didn't work. The atonements were so temporary. The people were perpetually having to return to the altar and kill more animals to pay for their sin. Paul quotes Jeremiah 31, in fact, in Hebrews chapter 8, verses 6-13. through 13 stating that there was a need for a new covenant because of the weakness of humanity that made the first covenant unattainable. Because man could never live up to that conditional covenant for righteousness. He needed an unconditional covenant supplied and provided for by God himself if he were to have any hope of redemption. Now, I'm not going to read Hebrews 8 today. I've preached through all of Hebrews. You can go back and listen to those if if you have time. Uh, There's a lot of sermons there. But I do want to read you some of Paul's conclusion in Hebrews chapter 10. Beginning in verses 1 through 4, the Bible says this. For the law, having a shadow of good things to come, and not the very image of the things, can never with those sacrifices which they offered year by year continually make the comers thereunto perfect. The law could never do it, Christian. For then would they not have ceased to be offered. Because that the worshipers, once purged, should have had no more conscience of sin. They go, they offer a sacrifice, their, their conscience is purged, not just their, 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 their bodies. It's not just that they are purged from their sins, but their conscience has been purged from dead works or from their sin. And then they'd be able to move on. But that didn't, that's not the way it worked. Verse 3. But in those sacrifices, there is a remembrance again made of sins every year. For it is not possible that the blood of bulls and of goats should take away sins. Skipping then to verse 10, we read this. By the which will we are sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. And every priest standeth daily ministering and offering oftentimes the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. But this man, after he had offered one sacrifice for sins forever, sat down on the right hand of God from henceforth expecting till his enemies be made his footstool. For by one offering he hath perfected forever them that are sanctified. One for all. 
So we read in Romans chapter 8, verses 3 and 4. For what the law could not do, in that it was weak through the flesh, God sending His own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, condemned sin in the flesh, that the righteousness of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not after the flesh, but after the Spirit. One more connection then in our time together today. At the end of the life of Jesus Christ, as he pointed himself toward the cross, he sat down with his disciples to eat a meal. During this meal, he took bread and broke it and said, this is my body, which is broken for you, declaring that he would be bruised and broken enduring the wrath of God against sin. Then he would go on to say this in Matthew 26, verses 27 and 28. Bible says, and he took the cup and gave thanks and gave it to them, saying, drink ye all of it. For this is my blood of the New Testament, which is shed for many for the remission of sins. Now, the words New Testament, it's translated testament in our Bibles, but it's the word for covenant. This blood is the new covenant. When Abraham and God made their unconditional covenant... Abraham cut those animals in half and put them on the sides of the hill and the blood flowed into the bottom of that hill and Abraham was put into that deep sleep and the Lord walked through, passed through the blood on that day, sealing the promise of the covenant. The Lord himself, the Lord alone, walking through that blood. When God made an unconditional covenant to all who would believe, It too was sealed with blood. The Lord himself and the Lord alone shedding that blood for the sake of mankind. And upon that shedding of blood, the new covenant was established. Whereby it is now possible for man to receive a new heart, for his heart to be circumcised. So that God may enable a man to love God as God desires him to love him and to obey God as God desires him to obey him. And of course, the terms of the new covenant are given in John 3, 16 through 18. You know it well. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish but have everlasting life. For God sent not his son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. He that believeth on him is not condemned, but he that believeth not is condemned already, because he hath not believed in the name of the only begotten son of God. An unconditional covenant rooted only in the work of Jesus Christ alone, ratified with the blood. And when we come together on the first Sunday night of every month to partake together in the Lord's table, it is not a time where we are renewing, where we are crucifying Christ again. We are not shedding his blood again. His blood was once shed for us. But it is a time where I get to come together and, and, and with, with those who I love in unity and we get to remember something. We get to remember that I don't have to come to the altar again and again and again and again. I come to the table again and again and again and again because as often as I eat that bread and drink that cup, I show, I demonstrate, I declare the Lord's death till he come, but I'm not coming to shed blood again. There's no blood being shed again. It was shed once for all. And that's why we do it regularly. 
Because in the regularity of the Lord's table, we are reminded that that regularity is looking back upon something already done. It's not something that has to be done again and again and again and again. The blood of the covenant already shed. The promise of the covenant that you are a sinner and your sin has separated you from God and there's no way in and of yourself, no matter how hard you try, that you can be made righteous that you can make yourself righteous. No amount of good works, no amount of going to church, no getting baptized, no giving of money. None of that works. It cannot work. No blood of calves, no rivers of oil. But God in His love sent His only begotten Son to die upon the cross to pay for the sins of every man and every woman and every child who has ever lived. And in this moment, God walked through the blood of the covenant Himself Asking nothing of man or woman or child, but the only thing he asked of anyone who would ever appropriate one of his promises, that they would receive it by faith, that they would believe the promise. Abraham believed God and it was counted unto him for righteousness. That's all he's ever asked. But though there are no conditions, then there is that one prerequisite, isn't there? God can only give the benefits of the promises of the covenants to those who receive it by faith. To those who will believe on Jesus Christ to be saved, setting aside anything and everything that they might otherwise be trusting in in an attempt to gain the worthiness or forgiveness of, or redemption of God and trusting in Jesus Christ alone to be the one who is worthy for them. Trusting that Jesus walked through the blood himself and that there's no condition upon me. So then the new covenant fulfills the system. There's no more sore thumb. There's no more missing piece. There's no more out of place covenant. The new covenant wraps everything in a bow and makes it all nice and tidy. The new covenant fulfills everything that the Mosaic covenant, the old covenant, was supposed to do but could not because of the weakness of our flesh. And in the new covenant, the blessing is realized in full. In a way that God had designed the old covenant to be able to do but could not do because man could not live up to it. And now we have this system whereby every single part of God's promises to Abraham, the land, the seed, and the blessing are given and reiterated in an unconditional manner through the Palestinian covenant, the Davidic covenant, and the new covenant. And all of them are unconditional depending upon God alone so that God may in all things have the preeminence. And all throughout the Old Testament, it was promised that this would be so. Now the question becomes, of course, where does this all fit in with Israel and the church? I won't be able to get into all the depths of that today. I, I, I did do so in Amos not too long ago, and you can go back and listen to those uh, if you have curiosity, and I've uh, preached through it in other, uh, other forms as well, particularly, I believe, in the Revelation series. We aren't the seed of Israel, and I've spent a good amount of time throughout uh, these last couple of days reiterating the fact that, that there is a distinction between Israel and the church. However, all throughout the Old Testament, it was also promised that Messiah would draw the Gentiles to him. The New Covenant, however, in that it was given to 
those of Israel and of Judah in Jeremiah chapter 31. That's where the new covenant is promised. We recognize that it was promised for Israel. It was promised as a means by which to help them live up to that which they could not in the old covenant. The old covenant was given to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. The new covenant was given for them to fulfill what the old covenant had promised. It fits into the physical promises made, according to the testimony of scriptures that we read today. It fits into the descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and of Jacob. Now we, the Gentile world, have been ushered into that covenant. But the fact that we are co-inheritors of the new covenant does not mean that God has abandoned his plans for Israel. It does not mean that the church has inherited all of their promises. And as we've studied these covenants, you've seen how closely connected they are to God's deliverance of the nation from Egypt, to God giving the Mosaic Covenant. And Romans 11, I believe, makes it very clear. We won't be able to get into it all today, as I've said. But I believe Romans 11 makes it very clear that there's coming a day when the nation of Israel will finally, nationally, accept their Messiah and enter into this new covenant. I believe Deuteronomy 29 and 30 demands it to be so. Deuteronomy 30, verse 6, demands it to be so. That there is a regathering to come. And that he will, in that regathering, restore his people. Now, granted, different people interpret that different ways. We already talked about that. Not to say that everybody who, who, who does not believe that Israel has a place in God's plan is, is, is inherently uh, disregarding Scripture. No, they're interpreting Scripture differently. That's why I began this little mini-series with... His, uh, natural, historical, grammatical, contextual, how it is that we approach interpretation. That's why we started there. We're building up why it is we believe what we believe. But we believe God still has a plan for Israel. We believe that that Israel will nationally finally one day accept their Messiah. And on that day, the nation will meet all of the prerequisites necessary, which is faith, to receive of all of the unconditional promises of Abraham, the land, the seed, and the blessing to be realized in full because they, their heart will be circumcised. They will love the Lord as, as the Lord desires them to love him. And then all of the promises of the kingdom will be given to them so that we read in, Isaiah, in Romans chapter 11, verse 25 to 29. For I would not, brethren, that ye should be ignorant of this mystery, lest ye should be wise in your own conceits, that blindness in part has happened to Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles become in. God has allowed Israel to live in this state of blindness and of rejection for this time, at this point, the last 2,000 years, until the fullness of the Gentiles become in through the church. At the end of which, the Bible says in verse 26, and so all Israel shall be saved as it is written. There shall come out of Zion the deliverer, and shall turn away the ungodliness from Jacob. For this is my covenant unto them when I shall take away their sins. So we see that God has made a prominent, uh, a, a, a covenant, excuse me, a promise, a covenant to Jacob. Not Israel, Jacob. Now, does this mean that every person of Israel from every generation will be saved? No, it does not. The Jew today who has rejected Jesus Christ as a Savior in this age of grace, who dies outside of Christ, does not have a special dispensation because he's a Jew. It's speaking of that final generation when God regathers them 
And after regathering them, when he presents himself to them again, and as he presents himself to them again, the nation in that day will receive him, Messiah, for themselves. That is the promise made here. Notice verse 28. This is fascinating. As concerning the gospel, they are enemies for your sakes. They're enemies of the gospel, the Jews are. But as touching the election, they are beloved of their father's sakes. For the gifts and the calling of God are without repentance. Right now, the nation of Israel are enemies of the gospel. And all who reject the gospel have their place in the lake of fire, the Bible says. But they are also yet beloved of God because they are yet an elect people. They are not elect unto salvation in that sense. That's never what election talks about in the scriptures. Go throughout all of scriptures and you will never find election referenced as uh, directly connected to salvation. Election does not reference salvation in the scriptures. Election references purpose. They are elect people because they have been given promises. And the gifts and the calling of God are without repentance. God will not turn away. He has made them promises and he will fulfill them. They are beloved of God. They are an elect people. They are under direct covenants given to them by God. And when God makes a promise, he keeps it. And his promise to them is that a deliverer will come out of Zion who will take away their ungodliness. And in that day, he will take away their sins. Today, they are blind. And in part, that blindness is there ordained by God specifically for your benefit so that you might come into the covenant. So that you might be brought into that which God has ordained for them, but which today they have not yet received for themselves. But the fact that we share in the new covenant in no way implies that we have it exclusively, nor does it necessarily demand that we will share in all of the others. And the fact that we have the new covenant by no means invalidates the promises made to the seed of Jacob. And that's where we, this is where this leaves us today. Everyone who enters into any of God's blessings does so by accepting, by faith, the new covenant secured through the blood of Jesus Christ. For we who are in this age, as we would see it, the new covenant ushers us into the church, a redeemed body of believers who are in Christ. We live this life as kingdom citizens in a dark world, not serving a physical kingdom, but serving a spiritual kingdom. Our priorities rest upon that spiritual kingdom. Our obedience is to our spiritual king, who is Christ. And one day we will die and we will go to live with Christ and Christ will return. And and in that day, if we have not yet died, then we will meet him in the air and so shall we ever be with the Lord. Once Christ has gathered his church in full, he reinitiates his program with Israel. God never promised to rule physically over the church, but he did promise to rule physically over Israel. He promised that the seed of David would rule on David's throne over the nation. So at the end of that terrible time of tribulation, when Israel is brought to their knees and finally realizes their own self-righteousness, then then Jesus Christ will redeem them and they will look upon him whom they have pierced and they will mourn for him and they will receive him. And that will usher them into a time that we call the kingdom. And within that time, a 1,000 year reign of Christ upon the throne of David, the nation will, having yet physical bodies, that nation having not died, not yet being resurrected, having received Jesus Christ as their Messiah, will be ruled over by Jesus Christ. And as we might believe it as well, that we will rule and reign with him. For 2 Timothy 2 verse 12 tells us that if we have suffered with Christ, we will likewise reign with him. 
So we believe the church will perhaps rule and reign with Christ as he fulfills his promises to the nation of Israel in that thousand years. After which all of Christ's enemies will be forever removed into the lake of fire. New Jerusalem will descend from heaven and all the redeemed Jew and Gentile alike will join in New Jerusalem where we will ever be with the Lord. God having fulfilled every promise, literally, naturally, both to his people, the church, and to his people, Israel, forming them in the end into one redeemed people, all of whom have chosen to love him as he has always desired. And so we see that the church has been ushered into the blessings of Israel, not to usurp them, but to join them, though arriving first in the blessings of the covenant. So beyond all of the academic knowledge and the philosophy and the interpretation and such today, our exhortation is this. We trust that the God of all flesh will do right. We trust that God will keep his promises. We trust that God is just, that he is merciful. One of the reasons why I choose to believe that God will keep his promises to Israel in the natural and literal way that we, that, that we believe them is because I'd like to think that he will do the same to me with the promises he's made to me. I'd like to think that I'm not walking through life with an expectation of God's promises only at the end of my life to realize that uh, God was actually just redefining the terms to actually apply this to someone else and I, I actually missed out. I trust that God will keep his promises. I trust that God has established these covenants with men, not because he has to, but because he loves us. Maybe you disagree again with what I've taught about the kingdom and the covenants. Maybe the way that I'm going to approach Abraham will be different than you would. But again, if you carry nothing else away from you these past few weeks, would you today make sure that on the day that God faithfully keeps his promises to all that have entered into them by faith, however that plays out, whether you agree with me on how that plays out or not, would you make sure that on the day that God keeps those promises, because he's going to keep his promises, make sure that you're one of those who has entered into them by faith. Did you do that today? If you have never received God's promises through the new covenant, if you have never accepted Jesus Christ as your Savior today, that unconditional covenant which He has secured through the blood of His own Son, yet only given to those who receive it by faith, would you today make that step and receive that promise by faith? The gift is free, open to all. Whosoever will may come, Jesus said. But you have to come to God His way. It's an unconditional promise based solely upon what Jesus Christ has done on the cross. It's entirely within His power. It's entirely empowered by Him. But there is one prerequisite. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and thou shalt be saved. And if you will do so on the authority of God's word, you'll be given that new heart. Your iniquities will be forgiven and your sins will be remembered no more. Entering into that eternal unconditional covenant of which we have just the smallest taste already on this earth until the redemption of the purchased possession. Thank you for listening to Pastor Jamin Wickler from Legacy Baptist Church in Buffalo, Minnesota. 
More information about Legacy Baptist Church and a library of sermons are available at www.legacybaptistchurch.net.